Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, IAH director Mark Katz speaks with Professor Emeritus William Ferris. In their conversation, Professor Ferris discusses his Grammy award-winning release, Voices of Mississippi. Throughout the interview, you will hear selections of music documented by Professor Ferris from the box set, available now through Dust to Digital. You're now listening to My Mother's on That Train by Mary Alice and Alan McGowan. Go around the mountain, all the bells go ding dong, ding dong, and we'll go wow, 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 wow. Chow, 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 chow. So I'm here today with William Ferris, retired professor of history from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a recent Grammy winner. He just won the Grammy for Voices of Mississippi, Artists and Musicians Documented by William Ferris, and it won the Grammy for Best Historical Album. So welcome to the Institute podcast, and congratulations on your Grammy. Thank you, Mark. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's, uh, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I've known you as a colleague here at UNC Chapel Hill for many years. And just as uh, I've just been a fan as well, someone who is uh, in music, um, knowing the work that you've done over the decades. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure for me to be able to talk with you about, uh, about your work, about your mo- most recent work, Voices of Mississippi, but also just your body of work, and also to have a conversation with you about the arts and humanities, about music, about technology, and, uh, and whatever else we want to talk about. So the first thing I want to mention, I want to talk about your Grammy award-winning release, Voices of Mississippi. One thing that I noticed right away is that it is a beautiful release. So in this day and age, which is uh, we hear things on Spotify and in digital form, the label Dust to Digital did such an amazing job with this release as an artifact. It comes in a cloth-bound um, case. It has a hardcover book. It has beautiful photos. So I'm just curious, in this age of digital, why was it important to you to have this kind of physical artifact as part of this release? Well, Dust to Digital was founded by a young couple, Lance <clears throat> and April Ledbetter, And they really are gifted in creating the next generation of what music will look like, both in sound and in visual terms. And what they do is to go through collections of music that are largely inaccessible and select the very best and have essays written on those in books And then they put that in a package, which is called a box set. And I had used their work for a number of years in my course here at the University of North Carolina on Southern music because they do classic portraits of Alan Lomax's Parchman Penitentiary recordings and many other topics. So when they approached me about doing a box set, I said I would be thrilled and so roughly 10 years ago it started, and it took that long to go through the archive and pull it all together. And this represents a body of work that goes back decades, isn't that right? Yes. Um, 
really, I started these as a teenager on the farm where I grew up, recording uh, a church, Rose Hill Church, that I used to attend as a very young child. And I learned the hymns. Uh, I was four or five when I first went. And as I grew older, I realized that there were no hymnals in the church. And when those families were no longer there, the music would disappear. So I began to record and photograph and later film the services as a way of preserving that memory of music that was so important to me and to the families. That grew. I began to go further afield and record blues. And eventually I found my way into the field of folklore and actually did a Ph.D. on the work I'd started in the 50s. And it has been my life's work. And this box set is what I consider the crown jewels of my recordings of blues, of uh, gospel, of storytelling, uh, both in a recorded form and in documentary films. Well, one thing I should note is that uh, this set isn't just music. It uh, comes with uh, four different discs. One says uh, storytelling, another is blues, another is gospel, another is film. So this is uh, much more than just uh, a set of blues uh, records, right? It is. And ever since coming here, I've taught a course on Southern literature and the oral tradition, which looks at how writers are inspired by and influenced by storytelling and music. And for me, this is oral literature. And the earliest literature, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Bhagavad Gita, were all oral traditions that were later written down. So this book is, a, I think, really a wonderful resource because it contains detailed transcriptions of the songs and the stories that give you a much deeper relationship to what that body of oral uh, tradition represents. So I, I heard something fascinating uh, in an earlier interview where you said something to the effect that recording <clears throat> the voices and music of, of African-American people was a political act. So I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by that. Well, I grew up in the 60s, which was the era of the civil rights movement, <clears throat> and I was involved with civil rights marches and desegregation of Davidson College, where I was a student. And I was also attracted to these recordings and at Davidson, I stumbled on the uh, Library of Congress recordings that John and Alan Lomax had done, many of which were in my home state of Mississippi. And that inspired me to continue the work I was doing. And I also felt that in recording these voices, it was a political act 
to preserve the voices of people who had been left out of our history. They were not on the shelves of libraries. In many cases, when I recorded stories, people would say to me, now, if I tell you this, do you promise to tell it the way it was here, to put it out so people can hear the truth? And I said, I promise. And this box set is my promise realized. Well, that's a, a beautiful sentiment and a, a powerful statement uh, that I, I think is inspiring because um, you think that recording is simply just capturing the sounds of, of what uh, people are saying or singing or playing, but it's actually quite a bit more than that. It is. You know, I, I think it's a very simple thing, and I tell my students, you have no excuse not to do this because you have iPhones or similar devices that allow you <clears throat> to record, to film, to photograph without any expense. And you can do it in a very high-quality format. So whether it's your grandparents or musicians in your community or whoever, you really have an obligation to make these recordings and to preserve your little postage stamp of history in that way. So getting back to something you said before about the political nature of this work and, and your involvement in civil rights as a Mississippian, certainly you weren't a complete outsider to the musicians that you recorded. But given that you, um, you're white and you're an academic, uh, you also represent sort of a um, historic power relationship um, in this country that you can't actually resolve yourself. This is just the history of this country. So I'm wondering, how do you account for those realities in your work? And, and how do you advise other researchers to, to think about these realities? Well, in the context of the 60s, if you were white and going into the black community, you were risking your life because civil rights workers uh, like Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner were murdered uh, and others were put in jail. So you did it at a risk to yourself, and black families knew that. <clears throat> so when you came to the door, they wanted to know why you were there. When I went <clears throat> to find James Thomas, the blues singer, I knocked on his door and his wife came to the door and she said, what do you want? I said, I'm looking for James Thomas. She says, he doesn't live here. So I turned around to leave and then she said, what do you want with him? And I said, I'm writing a book on the blues. I don't want to put him in it. And she said, he'll be back in about an hour. You can sit down on the porch. I wouldn't go to Cairo, but I water to have me. The girl I love, she got washed away. It's a great story. So music actually was was a passport and a kind of entree into this world. Um, 
to talk a little bit more about the process. And, and you mentioned nowadays we walk around with video cameras and recorders in our pockets. In those days, you didn't have that luxury. And uh, I understand in the early days you were using large reel to reel recorders. So can you say a little bit about that process of just going into whether it's someone's house or outside or maybe in a in a in a building and setting things up and what were some of the challenges what are some things that people <clears throat> nowadays just wouldn't think about given that to us now these reel to reel recorders seem like relics well the first challenge was financial because for a student it was expensive to buy film to buy reel to reel tapes and to buy the equipment the camera, the recorder, and later a Super 8 film uh, camera. And I traveled with a a trunk full of equipment and supplies, and I traveled alone. So once I was ready to do recordings, I I had a, uh, a carpenter's case, a long metal case, with my microphones and tapes and things in it. So I would carry a few pieces of luggage into the house and set up lights and microphones. Then the the, uh, recording would begin and it would often run for hours. Uh, If it was going well and people were enjoying it, whether it was music or conversation or a church service, I just listened and let the tape roll and in many cases I no longer remember some of those recordings because they were many years ago but when you hear them they all come back as if they were yesterday. So of course not all the people that you met or recorded were used to having their voices recorded and um, I'm just wondering how did you put people at ease or what was your approach to try to get um, a, a naturalistic um, a portrait of of their voices, of their singing, of their playing, um, and uh, did you have any particular challenges with that? Well, I think people are flattered if you're interested in their story and what they do, and I was very interested, <clears throat> whether it was how they met their spouse or uh, how they learned their music. I gave them focused attention and told them I was going to put that into a study. And if I'd been there before when I came back, I had a little dark room that I would develop film and prints in, and I would bring them photographs, which were the most important gift I ever gave, because the next time I would come back, those photographs were on the wall. They were framed, and that created a kind of bond. And then when I published my first book on the blues, I sent it to all the people in Leland, Mississippi that were in it. And they wrote back and said, can you send some more books? I gave mine to my neighbor, and they never returned it. (laughs) Well, that was a compliment to me because it meant the community appreciated what the book was about and saw their own identity within it. So what you're describing to me sounds like a, 
an ethical code of conduct as a researcher. You try to reciprocate, acknowledge, uh, uh, inform people. So did you have a very explicit or conscious code of conduct that uh, you operated uh, by when you were doing these recordings? Well, I tried to see. I didn't have a lot of money, you know, in addition to buying my equipment. But if there were things that were needed, like a fan or food, I would bring gifts that I thought would make a difference. Uh, And they did. They appreciated that. But more than those gifts, the photographs were things that really made a kind of impact that I never imagined would be possible. So I imagine you must talk about some of these stories and some of your practices with your students. And I'm curious about how your research has informed your teaching and perhaps vice versa. Well, my research really has defined my teaching in virtually every lecture in my course on Southern music or Southern literature in the oral tradition. I do a lecture followed by a PowerPoint, used to be a slide projection, but a PowerPoint and then a film. And in many cases, the recordings I play during the lecture, the PowerPoint images and the films are work that I made during my field work. So I can talk in a very personal way about the topic. If it's blues or literature, I'll play a, uh, a passage of Eudora Welty or Alice Walker talking about their work with their photographs and film. Or if it's blues, it could be James Thomas. Uh, But when you can integrate your uh, ethnographic work, your field work, in an intimate way, it really creates a kind of seamless bond between your work as a a folklorist and as a teacher. I want to go back to the field for a moment. Um, I just love hearing your stories about uh, your experiences and your exchanges with people. So one thing that is simply a fact about recording is that it captures the sound, but it doesn't capture all the other Mm -hmm. sensory uh, experiences that you have. So I imagine, I have a picture in my mind, I imagine you um, going up to someone's house and you're seeing the house you go inside, maybe it's hot, maybe it's cold, maybe you have coffee or iced tea. And so all your senses are engaged. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could pick an example of a recording that you've done and, and uh, maybe give us a, a sense of that full sensory experience, uh, just to give us an idea of what's not captured when, when you're recording. You're right. The recording captures the audible sound of the moment. But the context in which you entered the house and stayed overnight, left the next morning, you can't imagine that if you simply have the recording. 
you have the recording, but you have no sense in which it was made. And I did some amazing recordings with Mississippi Fred McDowell in 1967 in his home uh, in Gravel Springs, Mississippi. And he was extraordinary. He was like a prince, beautifully dressed with a, a little bow tie, and he tuned his guitar perfect pitch. And I remember after the recordings were done, he and I and several others drove back from the home where they were made, and someone was following us, and I sped up. It was a dirt road, and eventually they, they couldn't keep up. That was a scary night, and I stayed in the home with Mr. and Ms. McDowell that night, slept on the couch in their living room, and the next morning I woke up, I'll never forget it, to the smell of coffee and biscuits cooking in the kitchen, and those were the best biscuits with molasses and fresh butter and coffee that I ever tasted. That blues, in my mind, is associated with that whole experience of being in their home and the food and camaraderie that we shared. It's a beautiful story. It really evokes for me the whole picture. And I could imagine the dust kicking up when you're driving, the smell of the coffee, as you said, the taste of the of the biscuits. And, and it does uh, reinforce an important point in my mind, which is that music is much more than just sound. It's mm-hmm. part of, of life. It's part of ritual. It's part of a social fabric. So can you say a little bit more about how music functioned in the lives of, of the artists that you recorded over all these years? Well, music is really the foundation of all humanity. Our language originally was oral, not written, and <clears throat> it was sung. There is a, a, a singing quality to oral tradition, and we have divided the oral from the written in our culture, but in many cultures it's all one fabric. And it helps us understand why in traditional worlds like the Mississippi Delta, blues is so powerful and spirituals and hymns are musics that have been a part of survival for two centuries and more, during slavery, during Jim Crow, and today. Music is the way people deal with suffering and pain and looking forward to a better life. Uh, on this earth and after afterlife as well. That reminds me that a professor of mine once described music as a tool for living, that it's a way that, uh, that we actually construct our lives, make sense of our lives, improve our lives, heal, and so on. And that seems very consistent with what you've seen over your career. Yes. Well, I gave the title of a book I wrote on the blues, Give My Poor Heart Ease which is a line from the blues song, Highway 61. And one of the verses in that song says, I walked Highway 61 till I give down in my knees 
trying to find somebody to give my poor heart ease. And that is exactly what the blues is. It gives your heart ease and allows you to survive in a world of of suffering. Well, and that, that goes to the, the whole idea of the blues or the uh, misperception I think people have is that it's just about sadness and it's just about wallowing in, in misery. But it's, uh, it's in fact, as you describe, a way to, to heal to, uh, and even to celebrate. It is. You know, it, it's a music about love, uh, lost love and new love. Uh, Sonny Boy Williamson has a verse where he says, you think your woman is beautiful, you ought to see mine. When she makes love, it brings eyesight to the blind. And that's it. It heals. Even the blind can see uh, through love and through the blues. I wish the good Lord you could see mine. Talking about your woman. I wish the good Lord you could see mine In the time the little girl start loving She brings our sight to the blind Do you have plans for more field recordings? I mean, you've retired, uh, but uh, my understanding when I talk to my retired colleagues is that just means freedom from faculty meetings yeah. and, and they they can now do the things they want. So what, uh, what are some things that you're planning on doing in, in retirement? Well, I'm working on a book of my black and white photography, which uh, I'll be moving forward with the spring. Uh, I'm also working with my French publisher, <clears throat> who did a French translation of Give My Poor Hearties called Les Voix du Mississippi, The Voices of Mississippi. And they're going to do what I would describe as graphic novels based on my life and on the lives of the people with whom I've worked using comics. And I'm working with uh, Jean-Michel Dupont, who wrote a book called Love in Vain that is a graphic novel inspired by Robert Johnson. He does the writing, and then he will commission cartoonist to do each chapter and it's a very exciting new kind of frontier for me like the box set I'm seeing things happen that I could never have imagined in the 60s when I did much of this work and I still do with my little iPhone recordings and photographs and films when I can find an opportunity and someone is talking about things that are interesting, you just pull it out and I carry a little tripod. If I want to really do a high quality recording, you have virtually studio quality work if you set it up carefully. And my wife Marcy is doing a book on the food of North Carolina and she's traveling from the mountains to the Atlantic, interviewing chefs and food people using her iPhone and a little tripod. And so there is an opportunity that I'm trying to embrace with the technology, which 
allows you to have so much more versatility in, in actually making recordings, but also in taking old recordings and sharing them with the public globally because the Internet delivers everything that I've ever recorded. They're all digitized and streamed through the Southern Folklife Collection here. So every recording I ever did, if you have access to the Internet, you can download and listen to, which is unimaginable. No, it is It is unimaginable. Even in the last 10, 15 years, we went from from that being a dream to a reality. Well, those two projects you mentioned sound amazing. I look forward to seeing them. Before you came to UNC, you were chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And I want to ask you a question about that. I wonder just over the intervening years what you've observed about the state of the humanities, the status of the humanities, the challenges that the humanities face, and uh, where you see things now from your perspective. Well, I always see the glasses half full. And the humanities and the arts in our country have always been and will always be under fire from some sectors because artists and writers are free spirits and they write truthfully and create truthfully. And some people, often politicians, will not like that. But they will persevere and prevail. And the two endowments are our way of officially, at the national level, supporting and encouraging our artists, our writers, our scholars, with a pittance of money that we give each year, less than $200 million. Uh, the needs are far greater, but even that is significant. And uh, our nation <clears throat> is blessed by those endowments, and I was deeply honored to be at the helm of the National Endowment for the Humanities under President Clinton and one year under President Bush. Well, thank you for that service. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I think it's just so important that we have champions uh, like you um, who will not only speak out for the humanities and the arts, but actually demonstrate its, its significance through their work. It's a common question on our podcast mm-hmm. that we like to ask about a book, uh, a book that has changed your life. So can you tell us about one, one such book that has had an impact on your life? Well, I guess that would be James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which I first read in prep school in Brooks School in North Andover, Massachusetts, far from my roots in Mississippi. And I later reread in college, and I later wrote a thesis on it in Dublin, Ireland, and studied with uh, Richard Ellman, the biographer of Joyce, as a graduate student at Northwestern. But that book became sort of my Bible. I identified with Stephen Dedalus, the rebel, who, as he said, fled the nets of family, religion, and politics uh, in Ireland. Well, I identified with all of that, and I would add to that race. Those were the things that 
I struggled with as a Southerner coming of age. And this book said it all. It was discovering sexuality. Uh, when Joyce has Stephen see this young woman standing in the water with one leg lifted up like a bird, it's an epiphany that lingers. And the politics, all of it, and the anger and rebellion that Daedalus expressed, I felt viscerally, and I felt somehow Joyce had really changed my life. And The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is a book I always think of in reference when I'm in various situations. It's alive and well in my memory. What an amazing testament to the power of art to think that a Dubliner writing decades and decades uh, before you were uh, a young man could have such a powerful impact on a Southerner, a Mississippian. So thank you. Thank you for that. And and I imagine that your art and your writing has uh, changed lives too. So it's, uh, I imagine you, you must uh, sometimes feel that you're trying to give back as well. Yes. Well, I'm bl- I've been blessed in the course of my life. People who had fame and fortune, who were my heroes, took time to talk to me and to help me. Eudora Welty, Quincy Jones, Alice Walker, Alex Haley, Pete Seeger, his father, Charles Seeger, who founded, as you know, the field of ethnomusicology. I was able to somehow meet them, and they were all willing to take time and allow me to interview them and film them and to encourage me in the work I was trying to do. Well, it's an honor to be in your company, given the uh, amazing company that you uh, that you held um, over your years. So thank you very much for coming to spend some time with us. Thank you for being part of the Institute podcast. Well, it's a pleasure, Mark. And I have special pride in my friendship with you because of your field of ethnomusicology. And I'm so excited by what you've done in music here. And Most music departments have a token ethnomusicologist at most, but here we have a number of uh, ethnomusicologists, and they're doing incredibly important work, and that seems especially appropriate for a school like the University of North Carolina. Well, thanks again, Bill, Professor Ferris, for being such a wonderful colleague and guest. Thank you. Once again, the music you heard is available through the Grammy Award-winning box set Voices of Mississippi, Artists and Musicians, documented by William Ferris, released by Dust to Digital. Music credits include, in order of appearance, My Mother's on That Train by Mary Alice and Alan McGowan, I've Been Born Again by the Southland Hummingbirds, Cairo by James' son Ford Thomas, He's My Rock, My Sword, and Shield by Fanny Bell and Family, and Eyesight to the Blind performed by Sam Myers. You're currently listening to Nothing by Wash Heron and Big Jack Johnson. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. 
please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we ain't got no.